You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. In August of 1814, after defeating an American force twice its size in Bladensburg, Maryland, the 5,000-member British force entered Washington, D.C. and set fire to several public buildings, including the Capitol. And then they set their sights on the city of Baltimore and planned to attack that city both by land and by sea. The American army had an extensive network of defenses around Baltimore anticipating just such an attack. An American sharpshooter killed the British general when the forces attacked, but on the sea, on September 13th, the British naval fleet began a 24-hour bombardment of Fort McHenry. At the beginning of the battle, the American guns couldn't reach the, the British ships But as the British ships began to to advance, the Americans were able to damage them significantly, forcing them to to back, back out of range. And amazingly, and some might say, miraculously, this small American force at the fort held through the night. And in the morning, the British fleet withdrew. And this was the turning point in the War of 1812. And throughout the battle, because it took place during a rainstorm, Fort McHenry flew its storm flag. But at dawn, as the British began to retreat, they lowered the the small storm flag and raised the great garrison flag. This great flag was about 30 feet by 42 feet. It is the original star-spangled banner. It was made in Baltimore in the summer of 1813. It was raised over Fort McHenry that morning, September 14, 1814, to signify American victory over the British in the Battle of Baltimore. And that same flag is today in the care of the National Museum of American History and great care is taken to preserve it. Why? Because that flag is a memorial. It's a banner. It is a, a standard, if you will, a symbol under which the people rallied together to defeat the enemy. It isn't an idea of symbolism that's actually limited to the past. Do you remember just a few years ago when we were once again exposed to the seemingly bottomlessness of humanity's capacity for evil? When terrorists attacked uh, France, in, in Paris, France, and, and what happened, if you remember, maybe even some of y'all did it after that on social media? Countless people changed their profile picture on Facebook. What did they do? They overlaid the French flag on top of their profile picture. That same period of time, One World Trade in Manhattan, what did they do? They changed the the, the lighting at the top of the building to the colors of the French flag. Why do people do this? 
They did it because they wanted to express anger and sorrow and grief and solidarity with the people of France. They wanted to rally around the French people, and we naturally turn to flags as visible rallying points. When we look at our text this morning, we see God raise a standard. We see God raise a rallying point for his people. And I readily admit to tell you this morning that that texts like this, very often I would actually prefer to skip over. Why? I'm I'm challenged by, by warfare texts that speak of God annihilating people in warfare. I mean, it's easier to talk about spiritual warfare than it is to deal with actual physical warfare that we have in passages like this, particularly on the people of Israel's journey to the promised land. But here's why, as hard as it is to deal with passages like this, we don't skip over difficult texts. We got to wrestle with God's words in verse 14 of our passage Write this as a memorial in the book and set it in the ears of Joshua, the Lord says, for I will surely wipe out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. It's harsh language. But here's the deal. Last week, Pastor Russ preached on the first seven verses of this chapter where the people complained from a heart of unbelief. You remember their complaint in verse 7, is the Lord among us or not? That's what they asked. And in that passage, listen, the Lord was pictured for us as the divine sufferer. The staff of God in Moses' hand came down in judgment upon him. How is that? Because Moses struck the rock. If you remember last week's sermon, right, the rock is Christ. Moses struck the rock and God took the judgment that the people deserved upon himself so that they could get mercy and not the destruction that they so rightly deserved. Last week, in that passage, we saw God pictured as the divine sufferer. Well, this week, in contrast to that, we see the Lord pictured for us as the divine warrior. The divine warrior who executes judgment on his enemies. What do we do with this contrast? The divine sufferer showing mercy one minute and the divine Warrior executing judgment in the next minute. We're going to answer that question by working through the text with these three things. I want to talk about the war, the warrior, and the witness. The war, the warrior, and the witness. In verse 8 of the passage, the people of Israel are at Rephidim, and they're only a couple of months removed from Egypt, and they've come through a period of, of grumbling and complaining against God. The story that we've seen has, has them moving from, from, from the Lord testing them, which is what we hear in chapter 16 and verse 4, whether they would walk in, the, in his law or not to test them, uh, uh, the Lord said. I'm putting them to the test. It moves from that to them testing the Lord in chapter 17. The first time they face 
a water crisis in Exodus chapter 15 and verse 24. They asked Moses, what are we to drink? The second time they face a water crisis, they, they demand from Moses in chapter 17 and verse 2, give us water to drink. Even though they're testing the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? The Lord has responded to their growing discontent with mercy and he supplies an abundance of food and water for them in the wilderness. And now, for the first time as a free people, they face war. We're told in verse 8, that Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And, and remember, right, when they first left Egypt back in chapter 13, we're told that, that God did not lead them by the way of, land, of the land of the Philistines, though it was nearby. God's reason for not leading them in that direction, he said, was that they would become regretful when they see war and return to Egypt. They weren't ready to fight. They were a ragtag group of freed slaves. Well, here, here we are just two months after that. And does it seem to you like these people are ready for war? Ready or not, here it comes. They didn't go out seeking it. It found them. Why did the Amalekites come and declare war against Israel? We're not given the reason, but the original readers of this book would have known that there's a long history of problems between Israel and the Amalekites. The people of Israel get their name from their forefather, Jacob, and the Lord changed Jacob's name to, to Israel, and Jacob had a brother named Esau, and we find out in Genesis chapter 36, verses 12 to 19, that Esau had a grandson named Amalek. He's the ancestor of these people in Exodus chapter 17. And, and, and the reality is that, that Numbers 24.20 tells us that the Amalekites were, a, were an, an early nation. They were a nomadic group of people. And we find out in Judges chapter 3 and 13 that they lived partly by attacking other groups of people and plundering their wealth. In fact, Judges 7 and 12 says that they had numerous and swift camels and, that they used in their warfare. And that same verse says that they were like locusts in abundance and their camels without number. In fact, the Amalekites don't only attack Israel here. They attack them again a year from this point in Numbers chapter 14. Even when Israel is settled in the promised land, they've got to deal with the Amalekites. King Saul leads Israel in battle against the Amalekites in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And he spares Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And all the way to their exile from the promised land, the Amalekites are trying to destroy Israel. All the way into the book of Esther, Haman, who plots to annihilate the people of Israel, is an Amalekite. You see, we are disconnected from this. But, whatever, but, at, but at whatever point in, the, in, in Israel, that Israel was in their Old Testament history, this would not have been just some story about what happened way back when. 
The ongoing hostility between them and the Amalekites was rooted in this first battle. The generation that gets to enter the promised land is reminded of this in Deuteronomy 25 and 17 where Moses says to them, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who are lagging behind you and he did not fear God. Moses tells them in Deuteronomy 25 and 19, you shall not forget. This is their first war. And it marks the beginning of seemingly never-ending hostility with the Amalekites. And you see, usually in warfare, when there's an incredible victory, the story is about the resiliency of the troops. Even if they're outnumbered, right, they're determined not to give up. I talked about the Battle of Baltimore at Fort McHenry, and what the historians highlight is the determination of the troops who are holding the fort. They were outgunned, but they fought to the end all night long. They refused to give up, and they forced the British to retreat. But that's not what's happening here, y'all. This story is not about the determination of the people. This is the first time in Exodus that we meet the young man Joshua. Moses has to say to him, choose some men for us and go out and fight with Amalek. The likelihood is that Joshua had a, had a challenge of finding men who could fight. It wasn't like there was this nation full of warriors. Joshua had to go out and find who he could get to fight and prepare them for battle in one day. What we are being led to understand, family, in this war is who the real warrior is. It's not Joshua. It's not the people of Israel. It's not even Moses. The warrior is God himself. Moses says, tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. We're being clued into the fact that God is about to act. You know, uh, Little Orphan Annie had a song about tomorrow. The sun will come out tomorrow. Tomorrow, tomorrow, the sun will come out tomorrow. I love you tomorrow. You're only a day away. Now, if I was Pastor Russ, I would sing that for y'all. But I ain't, so you're just going to have to get my recitation of it. We can make a song about tomorrow from the book of Exodus. Every time the word tomorrow comes out of Moses' mouth, God is about to demonstrate that he's the man. What do I mean by that? In Exodus chapter 8 and verse 9, Pharaoh begs Moses to ask the Lord to take the frogs away. And Moses says, tomorrow, so that you will know that there is none like the Lord our God. And then when the Lord is about to bring the plague of flies, Moses tells Pharaoh in the land of, that the land of Goshen where Israel lives is going to be set apart. No flies will be in, in, in Goshen. And the Lord said, I will put a division between my people and your people tomorrow. 
this sign shall happen. When the plague comes on the livestock in chapter 9, it says in verse 5 of that chapter, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. When the hail comes, it's coming tomorrow in 9.18. When the locusts come, they're coming tomorrow in 10 and 4. And then in Exodus chapter 16 and verse 23, Moses tells them, tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Tomorrow, 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 something big is happening tomorrow. That theme runs through the first 19 chapters of the book. Tomorrow, Moses says, I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And Joshua did what Moses told him to do. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. They prevailed in the fight. Whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites prevailed in the fight. Any of you in here ever ride in a school bus? A little school bus riding? Uh, Now, I don't know if this still happens on school buses today or if this generation of children is somehow more behaved than we were when I was a child. But whenever we would go on a field trip, uh, the the bus would get kind of loud. You know, uh, everybody's talking, some folk are arguing, and the teacher reaches his or her limit, and after telling us to be quiet about 15 times, you know what we'd have to do on that bus? We'd have to sit there with our arms held up in the air, <laughs> quiet, until she said we could put our hands down. Now, I don't know if a teacher could get away with that today, <laughs> but this is the 1970s, y'all. They could do a few more things and not get in trouble. But have you ever tried to hold up your arms in the air and keep them there for a long time? Have you ever tried to just do, I know sometimes, right, you be in worship and be like, oh, I'm praising the Lord. I'd be like, man, my shoulders are tired. I've been, I've been, I've been, doing, I've been singing, it. We've, we've been singing this song for like five minutes. I need to put my hands down. Can you imagine? Right? How long do you think it takes before you got tired and your arms start to drop? What if you had a staff in your hand? Why is Moses standing on top of the hill with his arms raised in the air? He's not up there praying or with his arms raised in worship and adoration of God. In chapter 9, verse 22, Moses stretches out his hands toward heaven to usher in the plague of hell. In chapter 10, he stretches out his hand over the land of Egypt to usher in the plague of locusts. In chapter 14, he is told by the Lord to lift up his staff and stretch out his hand over the Red Sea and divide it. The staff is the instrument of God's power in the lifting of his hands is the power of God being put on display for his people but every time up to this point he hasn't had to keep his hands raised all day long can you keep your hands raised for even an hour without them feeling like they were lead and starting to drop how about keeping them up from sun up to sundown Here here is Joshua, down in the valley, leading the fight. And every time Moses can't keep his arms up, the Israelites start to lose. 
Aaron and her see this, so they get a stone and, that Moses can sit on, and then one stands on his right side, and one stands on the, the left side, and they keep, and they help Moses' hands keep him raised and steady until the sun goes down, and the result in verse 13 is that Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Joshua is given credit for winning the fight, but he ain't the real MVP. This is a description of war, and there are no details given about the actual battle. How many men did he take? How many people did he find? What strategy did he use to attack the, these people who rode on camels? We get no details from the battlefield. All the details about what happened are up on the hill. They're up on the hill. That's the point. The battle was won on the hill, not in the valley on the battlefield. The battle was won because their God is a warrior who fights for them. Right before this incident, they had been grumbling and complaining and asking, is the Lord among us or not? They didn't trust Moses. They were ready to kill Moses. In spite of this, God is still fighting for them. It's not as though now that they're out of Egypt, they got to fight for themselves. The battle is won on the hill. They have to look to the hill because that's where their help comes from. Their help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The Lord is their keeper. The Lord is their shade on their right hand. The Lord preserves their life, keeps them in their going out and their coming in. This Brothers and sisters, this is how it works when God redeems. This is what happens when he determines that he is going to bring a people to himself. You see, the Lord don't do partial redemption. The Lord doesn't do partial deliverance. The only kind of deliverance that God does is the kind that's full and complete and assured. Understand, that is part of what Jesus gets at in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10 when he says, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot destroy the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I haven't come to bring peace but a sword. Whether we like it or not, Jesus declares that an inevitable separation between those who belong to him and those who do not. What we see here in Exodus chapter 17 is about God's commitment to his people. Why are the Amalekites Israel's enemy? They're Israel's enemy because they're God's enemy. They're an object of his judgment because they're trying to stand in the way of his determination to save and establish a people for himself. Israel is only special because God has set them apart. Listen, hardly a week goes by in this sermon series in Exodus where we are not forced to be reminded of how undeserving Israel was of God's salvation. But as one commentator writes, this tiny people is the vehicle God has chosen through which he will redeem humanity and all of creation Israel's redemption is phase one of that redemptive plan, and thus he guards that plan with jealousy. God guards his plan of redemption with jealousy. 
Why? Because he doesn't do partial redemption. He doesn't do halfway salvation. The reality is that he guards his plan as the divine warrior. Understand? What we have before us in this passage is the power of hell trying to resist the plan of God. And God is a warrior. His enemies cannot win. As much as warfare texts like this can make us uncomfortable, as much as we may be bothered by the Lord saying that he's going to blot out the memory of the people of, uh, of Amalek from under heaven, we got to see it in the context of the special care that he gives to his people. What lengths, right, do parents go to to protect their children? Even if you're not a parent, even if you're a godparent, an auntie, a, a covenant parent in Grace Mosaic, to what lengths would you go to protect the young ones? You, you will go to great lengths. And listen, you're not motivated to do that because of their perfection. Your motivation to protect them is not because them jokers are perfect. Your motivation to protect them is love. Your motivation to guard them is because you love them immeasurably, incalculably. How much more is that the case with God for his children? To what lengths would God go to, 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 to protect and to, to make sure that his children make it all the way to the end? Not because we don't blow it, because we blow it every day. But Jesus says in the Gospel of John, right, no one is strong enough to take them out of my hand. Nobody can pry open Jesus' fingers to take anything that belongs to him away from him. Listen, so let me say this, please. Uh, why am I asking saying please like you got a choice? I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, the Christian understanding of this text is not God will fight the Amalekites in your life. The Christian understanding of this text, the right understanding of this text isn't you got a problem with this person or that person, so they're your enemy and God's going to get them. This is a picture of the final victory of God. This ain't about my little battle with somebody who don't like me or who I don't like. It's a picture of the reality that the Lord not only saves, he preserves. And there's no power of hell or scheme of man that's able to pluck his people out of his hand. There's a witness to God's power of preservation. There's a witness the Lord says to Moses in verse 14, write this in a, a, as a memorial in a book. Put it in the ears of Joshua so Joshua remembers what this was about. Right? For I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Right? Put it into Joshua's ears. Joshua, you didn't win this battle. 
You're not going to be the one who ultimately defeats the Amalekites. It's me. And Moses builds an altar and names it the Lord is my banner. Or as they used to say, Jehovah Nisi, right? He said, because a hand was upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Verse 16 says that a hand was upon the throne of the Lord. Moses had to lift his hand because the Amalekites had lifted their hand against the Lord. They had tried to assault God by standing in the way of his plan to redeem and preserve his people. And Moses builds an altar as a testimony, as as a witness, if you will, to the Lord's power to defeat his enemies and preserve his people. This is an altar, but it's not an altar for sacrifices. It's an altar of remembrance. They ain't gonna stay at Rephidim. They're going to move on to the promised land. But that altar will still be there as a witness to everybody who passes by and who sees it that at this place, the Lord put his power on display. It's built as a witness to what God has done at this place. The people were able to look to the hill. You understand the Lord would still have us be looking to the hill. He would still have us to refuse to put our hope and our trust in our own strength and in our own giftedness and our own abilities. He would want us to put our trust in him and his power to sustain us through faith in Jesus Christ. He would still have us to know that he's the one who fights his enemies. In Jesus Christ, we become a new people, not a nation state like Israel. So the church doesn't take up weapons to fight against people who don't want to believe in Jesus. But listen, the New Testament does understand that Christians are called to fight. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 10. Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. You see, the battle is truly a spiritual one and the daily fight of faith that Christians have to be engaged in has to be seen in light of the fact that Jesus has already won the ultimate battle. He's already defeated the enemy and he stands victorious. Just like Exodus 17 wasn't the last time the people of Israel had to deal with the Amalekites. They were dealing with them all the way into the book of Esther. At the same time, God's declaration in verse 14 that he was going to blot out the memory of the Amalekites was never in doubt. In the same way. When Paul tells Christians in Ephesians chapter 6 to put on the whole armor of God to fight not against flesh and blood but against spiritual forces of evil, we do it because we believe that Jesus Christ, our divine warrior, has already won the war. We don't need to build altars of memorial anymore. You don't need to find the church building altars of memorial or sacrifice anymore. That's because God has already provided all the memorial we need in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. The hill that we look to is Calvary. Y'all know that where the power of God to defeat evil was put on full display. And the memorial memorial that we have is right here. 
The memorial that we have is right here. The bread and the cup in the Lord's table. Every time we come to the table by faith, we testify to what God has done in Jesus, the victory that he has won. Every time we come, we participate in the victory of God. We find that we are included in the triumph. That no matter what it looks like in our lives, no matter the hell that might be breaking loose in our lives day in and day out, every time we come here and we eat and we drink by faith, it is our memorial. We know that we are participating in the victory that Jesus has won for us. That's good news. It's good news because it ain't going to seem like every day you win in the war. It ain't going to seem like every day the battle is going to feel like the arms are coming down <laughs> and the enemy is winning. We have every memorial we need. We have every memorial that we need and the reality of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we continue to look to that hill of Calvary where the victory over death was won, the great enemy that we have been brought into. Victory is ours in Jesus. Amen. Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.